This is the word of the Lord. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud uh, voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her, her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the, and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for your holy word, that you have revealed yourself to us, mysteries that we could never know by reasoning with our own minds, by trusting our own senses, mysteries that are only told because you are true. And so, Lord, we uh, come uh, before you and we sit under your word uh, that it might form faith in us, and uh, that it would lead us to our Savior, Jesus, and that we would trust in him and follow him and worship him. And so we pray that you would instruct us as a worshiping community uh, today as we uh, study Revelation 19 together. And so, Lord, we open our minds, open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, for the past three summers, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation is truly a literary masterpiece. Uh, there are countless patterns in this book. You know, this word is used 12 times, and this word's used seven times, and every, every little pattern like that has meaning and has significance, and I've only, as we've gone through them, just barely touched on some of those patterns. And there are numerous themes that tie the book of Revelation together as a whole. The, the cycles of the book follow the seven days of creation or the seven feasts of the Israelites' you know, annual feast calendar. And uh, the 40 years of the first generation of Christi Christians, the exodus, the exile, all these themes from the Old Testament. Actually, uh, Revelation references every single book of the Old Testament. 
And, um, and it's been studied uh, thoroughly for the last 2,000 years. And what's amazing is you study for 2,000 years and we're still making discoveries about its meaning and what God is saying through this, this book. And, you know, some of you have maybe thought, you know, I wish Jesus wrote a book of the Bible. You know, there's all these prophets and apostles who wrote books of the Bible. What, I wish he wrote one. Well, that's basically what Revelation is. It's Jesus dictating uh, his final book, the final word of the Bible, the great book of the Bible that ties everything together. The great masterpiece is from our Lord himself. And so that's what we're, we're studying together. And uh, there is one theme that ties Revelation together that we haven't really talked about yet through the first 18 chapters of Revelation, and I want to uh, talk about that today. And that is uh, that basically Revelation is a worship service. The book of Revelation is a, uh, a worship service. And this passage, like many others in Revelation, as we read it together, you saw there's all kinds of uh, people that, and angels that are singing and praising God and reciting things. This whole, this whole passage is about worship. I mean, almost the whole book of Revelation is like that. It's filled with songs that are happening, a, a praise to God. And you can see how worship is the focus of this passage that uh, we're studying today. You, if you look at verse 10 there, where it says, Then I fell down at the angel's feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This is a passage about worship. And for some of you, you know, you may have uh, questions about why our church worships the way we do. Maybe you haven't been in a church that worships the way, you know, we're a liturgical church. Maybe you haven't been in a liturgical church before. And so, for example, some of you might ask, you know, why do we recite things together as a church, well, you know, we had the prayer earlier in the service where we all said it out loud together, or we'll say the Apostles' Creed after the sermon. We're all going to stand up and we're going to say these words together. Why do we do that? Well, you notice this passage has uh, um, three uh, songs or poems that are recited not by individuals, but by a whole group of people. You see, verse six, for example, it says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out. So this great multitude says together, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And so when we say together, like during the call to worship, when we all say scriptures together, what we're doing is we're joining this multitude, joining our voices as a community to this multitude that we read about and Revelation. So why do we do that as a church? Why? It's because it's a pattern of the Bible. Revelation is liturgical worship. And the liturgy is, is basically the order of our worship. And uh, the word liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgia, which means a public work. And a, uh, a public work is when a group of people or all individuals come together and they go through a kind of rite or an action together. And as they pass through this rite, they're transformed from being a bunch of individual people into a community, into a body. And that's what God is doing here as we pass through this rite every week of the liturgy. God is transforming us. So especially if you are new to Christ Church, this sermon might be helpful for you in understanding why do we worship the way we do here. And so today, as we study Revelation 19, I'd like to make four observations about liturgy from this passage. And this is what they are. It is that the liturgy leads us into heaven. The liturgy is a dialogue. The liturgy renews the covenant. 
And the liturgy forms Christ in us. Four things that the liturgy does. It's, it, it, uh, it leads us into heaven. It's a dialogue. It renews the covenant. And it forms Christ in us. And if I could just make an aside, you know, starting in September, we're going to make a few small tweaks and changes to our liturgy. And I, I'll, I'll mention a few of those as we go along. And so that you all as a congregation could be prepared that some of those things are coming. So today, four truths about understanding our worship, our liturgy as a church. And the first is this. The liturgy leads us into heaven. The liturgy leads us into heaven. Uh, and now the reason I say that worship, the liturgy, is about entering heaven, or it's about heaven coming to us, you know, we're being joined with heaven, is because the focus of, of heaven is the place of worship in this passage. You see how it begins there in verse 1, where it says, After this I heard what seemed to be a, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. And so worship starts in heaven. That's always how things happen in the Bible. They begin in heaven and they conclude on the earth. That's why Jesus says, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. The way it's already in heaven, bring that to earth. So worship starts in heaven. And you might say, well, what is heaven? Well, I think there's an answer to that in this passage. You see it there in verse 4, it says, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. Heaven is the place of God's throne. It's the place where God dwells. And actually, we're going to find out in Revelation 21 that there's a city in heaven. It's called the heavenly Jerusalem. So heaven is a city where God, God dwells. And so the way to think of it is you know, God has made this creation... And it has two parts. There's heaven, you know, the unseen kind of world, and then there's the earth, the things that we do see. And, uh, and heaven is where God dwells, and the earth is where humans dwell. And uh, just as the United States has a capital city, we're all part of the United States, but the president lives in the capital city. That's what heaven is like. It's like the capital city of God's creation, of his kingdom, of where he rules. And that's where he lives, and that's where his throne is. Now, what's interesting is that if you read in the Old Testament the places of worship in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a tent where the Israelites worshipped, and then there was the temple, which was a building that they had built. Uh, if you went into the most holy place of, of the temple or the tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and the Old Testament says that the Lord was enthroned on, um, above the cherubim on the Ark. And so the Ark was God's throne room. And so you say, okay, so... In the tabernacle was God's throne room, and in heaven is God's throne room. What does that mean? It means that the temple and the tabernacle were the place of overlap between heaven and earth. You know, it's like a Venn diagram where there's heaven and earth, and the middle place is the temple. And so now it turns out, though, that temple uh, was, was destroyed, and now Jesus has established that his temple is no longer that building that was in Israel, but now it's a community. The Holy Spirit dwells in Jesus' people and in communities like this that are all over the world, we, when we gather together, are now the place where heaven and earth is overlapping, where God's dwelling and man's dwelling meet one another. And so that's why we say that liturgy, the worship service, leads us into heaven, into God's throne room. And, uh, and you might say, well, you know, I can't see all that. 
It doesn't look like a heavenly city here, you know, innumerable angels. I don't see the innumerable angels. So you're saying that right now we're in the presence of innumerable angels. We're in God's city. We're in God's throne room. I can't see that. Well, uh, that's the very foundation of what faith is. The Bible says that faith is the conviction of things not seen. And the most important things in life cannot be seen. You can't see love. You can't see God. You can't see the meaning of your life. You can't see loyalty. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see the promises of God. These are all the surest things in the world, and you can't see them. And if you can't see them, why believe in them then? It's because God's word says so. We trust, uh, you know, we believe God's promises more than we believe in our emotions. We believe God's truths more than we believe our own minds and our own reason. And we believe in God's reality more than we believe in our own senses. When God says this is the reality, that we are now, when we gather here, we have entered into God's throne room, and we are in his presence, in the presence of innumerable angels, and worshiping with him. So, liturgy is leading us into heaven. Okay, but when we get into heaven, what do we do there when we get into heaven. Well, that's the second thing we learn about liturgy from this passage. So liturgy first, it leads us into heaven. Second, the liturgy is a dialogue. The liturgy is a dialogue. And uh, you'll notice in this passage there are five songs that are sung or, you know, or, or poems that are kind of recited. Uh, you can see kind of four of them in the structure, and then there's one that's hidden there in verse four is the, is the fifth one there. And the first and the last of these songs are sung by a great multitude. You see them mentioned there. Verse 1 says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And then again in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And so the Greek word there for multitude, oklos, is, is only used uh, two other times in Revelation. And both times, the multitudes are human. So this multitude is a human multitude, and it's people from every tribe and language and tongue and every ethnic group in, in the wor world. There's this great multitude that God is gathering to himself. And so uh, in the liturgy, on the one hand, there's humans who are talking, okay? But then you see in verse 24 what it says in verse 24, and, or sorry, in verse 4, it says, and the, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And if you go back and listen last summer to the sermon on Revelation 4, we talked about how these 24 elders and these four living creatures are angels. And so you've got humans who are talking, and you've got angels who are talking. And then it says in verse 5, And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And the throne is where God and his Lamb, that's where the Son of God, are enthroned. And so the liturgy here of this passage is a dialogue between humans and angels and God himself. They all get a voice, and they're all speaking to one another. And, uh, and if you think about our liturgy, what we're doing here on uh, Sunday morning, that's exactly what's happening is there is a dialogue that's happening between God and his people. So this, uh, you know, our worship service begins with a call to worship where God tells us, I want you to come and worship me. And then we respond with a prayer of invocation. We pray to God, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to help us. And we sing a song of praise to him. And then God, uh, we have a reading of the law. That's God speaking to us. This is what I 
uh, expect of you how you live. It's like a mirror to show us our sin. And then we respond by confessing our sin to God. And then he responds to us by saying, I forgive you and be assured of my love that you have if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then we respond by singing the Gloria Patria and we praise the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and sing a song of praise to him. And then God speaks to us through the sermon. We have a scripture reading and he speaks to us and now we hear from him. And then we respond by saying the Apostles' Creed and giving him our prayers and our offerings as a response to him. And then he brings us to his table and he feeds us. And then we sing the doxology and praise him. And then he says a benediction. He gets the final word of the service and speaks over us. The whole service is a back and forth where God and his people are speaking to one another. It's a dialogue. That's what the, that's what the, the pattern of revelation, that's the pattern of our service. And, um, and I should mention that you know, one of the ways that the church has used dialogue in worship throughout history is through catechisms. And uh, catechisms are ways of teaching what Christians believe with a question and answer. Some of you may be been in churches that have had catechisms. We're a reformed. Uh, uh, our church is in the reformed tradition, and uh, there are many reformed catechisms. And so starting this fall, we're going to introduce into our worship the, the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563, and uh, it's a reformed uh, uh, catechism. We like it because it has a very warm and pastoral tone. So it's a pastoral tone mixed with very rich theology, and it's a way of teaching God's people. It's a question about theology, and then the people answer. And it's in that dialogue we learn who God is. And I love that the Lord invites dialogue, but I also love that the Lord gives us answers. And, you know, it's, it's very common in our generation for people to say, you know, I'm just, I'm just about asking questions. I'm not really looking for answers. I'm just, I just want to have an open mind. I want to explore different possibilities. And I don't necessarily need uh, an answer. And, uh, you know, uh, 2 Timothy 3.7 describes people in the church who are that way. This is how the Apostle Paul says it. That they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I don't think that that's what God wants for us, is to just go on asking questions on and on and on and never coming to a knowledge of what does the truth say. God has revealed this truth to us. Uh, G.K. Chesterton describes having an open mind this way. He says... The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. <laughs> you open your mind to close it on something that's something of substance. It's far more refreshing to ask a question and have the Lord, through his church, answer with something solid and true, so that we're no longer tossed around by every wind of doctrine, every fad that comes through our culture, uh, but we know what God's truth is. And there's a stability to our life together and to our faith. And so what we've seen so far is that through the liturgy, we enter into heaven, into God's throne room. And there, in God's throne room, the king begins a dialogue with us where he speaks to us and we speak back to him. But this passage says uh, something uh, more about actually who's having the dialogue in worship. And that leads to our third point. So the liturgy leads us into heaven. It's a dialogue. And third, the liturgy renews the covenant. The liturgy renews the covenant. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that word covenant, uh, a covenant is a relationship of love that is bound together by promises. 
A covenant's a relationship of love that's bound together by promises. And in the Bible, that's how God relates to his people, is he makes promises to them. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel and to us that have been incorporated into God's people in the church, uh, he makes promises to us and we respond to his promises by trusting in him and obeying him. And, you know, the, the most common f- form of a covenant relationship in human culture is the marriage covenant. You know, marriage covenant is a relationship of love that's held together by promises. On your wedding day, you make vows to one another. And you can see in this passage uh, the analogy of a marriage covenant to what's happening here in worship. You see it there in verse 7, how it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb is, is Jesus, is the Lamb of God in Revelation. And his bride has made herself ready. The bride is the church. It's the, the people who are the followers of, of Jesus. And so the dialogue in worship the covenantal dia- is a covenantal dialogue between Jesus and his bride, a husband and his bride that he loves and adores. And, um, and the reason that I say that the liturgy renews the covenant is because, you know, marriages need repair. And the relationship that we have to Christ is constantly in need of repair because we're sinning against him every week. And so just like in a marriage, when you sin it, when there's sin happening, you've got to repair the relationship. That needs to happen over and over again. And that's how Jesus is with his bride and with us. So he meets with us once a week to repair the relationship. And so covenant uh, renewal worship always has a certain form to it. And it's very simple. You see it in our worship. There's really three components to covenant renewal worship. is we confess our sins, we hear from God's word, and we eat at his table. We confess our sins, we hear from God's word, and we eat at his table. That simple three-fold pattern is how Christians have worshipped uh, throughout history. And uh, actually, the earliest liturgy that we have in the church comes from uh, Justin Martyr, who was a Christian apologist in the second century, and we have, you know, just a sketch of what worship was like then, and that's basically what it was. It was word, and you sit under God's word, and you come to the table. And then actually, that simple structure of those three things, confess your sins, hear from God's word, come to his table, it goes back even farther than that, um, back to uh, the time of Moses in 1400 uh, BC. If, you, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, it's an Old Testament book on worship, and it, there's all these animal sacrifices. There's quite a lot of details that you have to study through in them. But in Leviticus chapter 9, it gives a brief summary of all the animal sacrifices, and, it, and you find out that they really are summarized in three kinds of sacrifices, the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And those three offerings correspond to exactly what we do every Sunday here in worship. The sin offering is like our confession. We're dealing with our sin. The burnt offering, burnt offering means that the uh, smoke of the animal is rising up into God's presence. So, you know, in our service, the song before the sermon, we call the song of ascent. It's like the burnt offering. We're ascending into God's throne room for him to speak to us through his word. And then the last offering is the peace offering. And the peace offering is the one where worshipers get to eat the meal with God. And that's, of course, what the Lord's Supper is. We come and eat with God. And so covenant renewal worship is that sinners come, confess their sins, hear the gospel, and then eat with God. That is how God is over and over, Jesus is over and over repairing his relationship with his bride. And it turns out that that structure is actually the structure of Revelation, the book of Revelation as a whole. 
You know, you notice here we are at the end of Revelation. Revelation 19, Revelation has 22 chapters in it. We're getting close to the end. And what does it mention there in verse 9? And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation ends with a supper, like our worship service ends with a supper. And when you realize that and you go back through Revelation, you know how Revelation begins in Revelation chapter 1? It says that the apostle John who received this vision was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was in a worship service like us. On the Lord's Day, worshiping the Lord. That's how it begins, is a call to worship. And then Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sends these seven letters to churches and tells them all their sins. That's what we do in the confession. The Lord tells us our sins so that we confess them. And then in Revelation 4 and 5, uh, the Lamb of God ascends into heaven. And what does he have? A scroll in his hand, which is the Word of God. And the scroll is opened, and you know there's the seven seals that open the scroll, and then he gives the scroll to John, who eats the scroll and starts speaking what the scroll says, and that's kind of what we do. You know, all week I've been eating <laughs> the word of God and now speaking to you what God's word says, and then uh, and then in Revelation, after those words are spoken, God, the followers of Jesus offer themselves themselves to Him as martyrs. And that's what we do. We bring our offerings. We profess our faith. We, uh, we bring our prayers to the Lord. And then we come to his table. And that's how Revelation ends, with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And actually, the final words of Revelation are just how we end our service, with a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And so Revelation follows this structure of call to worship, confession of sin, preaching of God's word, offering, supper with Jesus, and benediction. And this whole rite is a renewal of Jesus' wedding vows with us, his bride. And if I could, you know, just make one more observation about our hope for the uh, vision for worship here at CCB is I really believe that the mood of worship should feel like a celebration, like a wedding feast. You know, in a wedding feast, there are solemn moments. There are serious moments when the couple is saying their vows and everyone's quiet and it's very important moments. But the wedding feast, people are greeting each other, they're laughing, they're dancing, they're singing. It's a, a celebration. And, uh, and for some people, even the word liturgy sounds like dead, emotionless religion. And that's why when we come here, we need to sing loud. We need to be excited to see one another. This is a wedding feast. And, uh, you know, it's not only a wedding feast, actually. It's, in this passage, it's also a victory feast. You see the, the first song starting there in verse 1, how it says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is the feast after a great battle has been won. And so there's an element where we come here and we confess our sins and we think about our sins. We need to do that. We need to be honest about our lives. But that's not the dominant tone. Is that we don't come here to get beat up about our sins. We come here to join the celebration of God's great victory through Christ and celebrate Jesus' marriage to his bride who he adores. Now when we do this over and over again, Every week, we, we go through this pattern of entering into heaven before God's throne room and having a dialogue with the king, and he teaches us the deep truths of reality. And we renew our covenant as sinners who constantly need to be repair with our, 
our Lord and come to his table and be reassured of his love, when we do this over and over again, it begins to have an effect on us. It begins to change us. And so that's the final point we're going to see about the liturgy today is that the liturgy forms Christ in us. So the liturgy leads us into heaven. It's a dialogue with God where we renew the covenant. And when we do that over and over again, the liturgy forms Christ in us. And what Christians have said throughout history is that the way we change as human beings is that there are patterns and habits of our lives that we do over and over again. They're like liturgies. And you can have good liturgies in your life, good habits and patterns that form you in one way. You know, our phones and screens can be patterns and liturgies that we do over and over, and they're forming and they're shaping us. And then uh, we can have good liturgies and patterns. You know, if you, if you have a family, for example, and you eat dinner together, and there's a certain ritual to that where we gather and we say thanks for the food and we catch up on our day and how was your day, what's happening in your life, that whole experience, when you do that pattern over and over again, it shapes everyone that's at the table. And so the church has both a weekly pattern that we go through in the liturgy. We also have an annual pattern. Uh, the church calendar. So when we pass through the events of the gospel every year, we tell the story of the gospel, the advent leading up to Christmas, and then uh, Epiphany, and, and Ash Wednesday that leads into Lent, and Palm Sunday, and Maundy Thursday, and Good Friday, and Easter, and Ascension Sunday, and Pentecost. Over the course of every year, we walk through the story of the gospel over and over again. The whole rhythm of our year is shaped by the gospel, and it forms us. And by the way, that's one other you know, change that we're going to be seeing over, over this year is we're going to have more kind of visually seeing liturgically where we are in the year. And so uh, our aesthetics committee and, and John Brodhagen have been working on that. And so you're going to see that in the fall and as we go into Advent. So we have an annual liturgy, but also the weekly liturgy that those who are far off are welcomed by God, were washed, were clothed, and were fed by him. And that pattern of the gospel changes us on a very deep le level. It becomes, this pattern that we do in the liturgy becomes the pattern of our minds, the pattern of our emotions, the pattern of our language, the pattern of our behavior, the pattern of our relationships and time and money, of our dreams for our future. Everything about our life begins to be shaped around the story of the gospel that we walk through every week as we come here. And so the liturgy is forming Christ in us over time. And you can see that in this passage in verses 7 and 8. You see what it says. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And when you hear that language, the righteous deeds of the saints, what you should hear is a transformed character. People whose lives are marked by compassion, by kindness, by faithfulness, gentleness, self-discipline, joy, love. How do we become like that? How do we get clothed like that? Well, he uses the language of putting on new garments, and that's how the Apostle Paul talks in other places. He says, you know, we've got to take off the old garments of, of anger and lust and greed and bitterness. We need to take off those garments, and we need to put on the garments of compassionate hearts and kindness and humility, that these are, these are the righteous deeds that we're clothed with. And you might think that that's your work, to redress yourself, to change your character, 
But you notice the language that here in verse 8. It's very carefully worded. It was granted her to clothe herself. The clothes were a gift. She must put them on, and we must put them on, and we, we have a part in that. But the transformation is a gift. And so when we come to the liturgy, we come to our Father. He washes us. He feeds us. He clothes us. The liturgy is how Christ is formed in us, and it is all by grace. And so our God wants to do a deep and profound work in each of our lives, and it takes time over the course of weeks, months, years, and even decades. And the thing we have to understand is the Holy Spirit uses means to form Christ in us, and one of the primary means is this liturgy. As we week after week enter into heaven, the throne room of God, and speak with God, dialogue with the king, we find that the king is actually a husband, speaking words of love and devotion over his bride, and renewing and repairing the covenant like a good husband. And as we do that over and over, his grace forms us in love, and we become more and more like him. May he do that for each one of us as we come here week after week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, for your word and how we think of Christians in every land and over the centuries who have passed through this same pattern of confession and sitting under your word, coming to your table, singing songs of praise to you. All of these things that we have joined with this multitude that we read about in this passage. And uh, Lord, we pray that this place would be a place where uh, many souls come that the life of Christ would be formed in us. Lord, we long to put off the old clothes of anger and bitterness and selfishness and lust and greed and to put on the new clothes of Christ's character in our minds and our hearts and our emotions. And so we, uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be doing that week after week as we appear before you here. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.